Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back, they told us. They indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. The word of God. You may be seated. It's the Sunday after the crucifixion. And two of Jesus' followers are walking seven miles from Jerusalem where the Passover was to Emmaus. They're depressed. They're down, they're discouraged, they're looking at the ground, and Luke tells us that Jesus shows up, but they are kept from recognizing him. He asks, what are you talking about? What's that story that you're telling? And his question stops them in their tracks. The text literally says, they stood still looking sad. Are you the only one who doesn't know the story? Are you the only one in all of Jerusalem that didn't hear about what happened this weekend? Don't you know the things that have happened? And I love Jesus' response. What things? This is the genius of the open-ended question. He says very little, and he gets them to say a whole lot. What things? So then they tell their story. Jesus, a prophet, condemned to death, crucified. It's been three days. His body was missing. Some women went, saw some vision about angels, but when the men went, they didn't see nothing. So, in the whole story, what gets me the most are these three words. They said, we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. My question for you this morning is, what is the we had hoped in your story. We had hoped that the chemotherapy would work. We had hoped that things would be different in this job. We had hoped that we had chosen the right employee for our business that would take us to the next level. We had hoped that this pregnancy would be healthy. We had hoped 
to form friendships at the church here. We had hoped our love would last forever. Last night, we started our divorce care group. It's not too late to be a part of that. If that's been your, your journey, so you've gone through a separation or divorce, and you'll find a beautiful, small group of people that will be supportive in those we had hoped moments. What is the we had hoped in your story? Something likely comes to mind because it's easy to get stuck in the we had hoped moments. Dr. Fred Luskin is the director of the Stanford University Forgiveness Projects and author of the book, Forgive for Good. He describes how a very close friend betrayed him years before and he could not let it go. It was causing him to have anger and despair so much so that it was alienating his wife from him. He was about to go into his PhD program and finally somehow he was able to forgive this former friend. And then he used his whole career in teaching about forgiveness. It launched his own forgiveness work. That's what he did his PhD in at Stanford. And he describes three different kinds of offenses that can be forgiven. He talks about interpersonal forgiveness. And that's what we usually think about when we think about forgiveness. Someone hurt me, and now I need to have something to do with that. Interpersonal. He also talks about intrapersonal forgiveness when that someone is you. What do you do when the we had hoped is something that you wish you could change for all your life? We had hoped. What about when it's you? And then existential forgiveness. What about when that someone is God? How could God let this happen? How do you make peace with that? What does forgiveness look like? Luskin suggests that the process, the steps, are actually the same for all these kinds of forgivenesses. I highly recommend his book, Forgive for Good. His last step in the process, step number nine, he talks about a grievance story. He says any story that you tell more than three times is a grievance story. When you're hurt and disappointed by something that did not go the way that you expected or wanted it to go, it's natural to create a grievance story. The problem is a grievance story is a focus on what has been done to us and places us permanently in the role of victim. Luskin encourages us to amend our grievance stories by focusing instead of our, on our heroic choices to forgive. So here's an example from look at what life did to me, I'll never recover, to look at what life did to me, see how well I've coped. From victim to hero. The two disciples on that road can only see their pain and disappointment and they are so blinded by the trauma that they've just gone through, witnessing an execution, I cannot even imagine what the trauma would be. They're so blinded by that trauma that they don't even recognize Jesus when he shows up. But he shows up. He shows up and he tells them a better story. He shows up 
And he places his suffering and their suffering and his suffering in the context of something much bigger. It says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. When Luke writes Moses and all the prophets, it's a shorthand for saying the entire scripture known at that time. The books of Moses, the first five books, all the prophets, Jesus helps them see his suffering in the larger story. We don't know how long it took them to walk the seven miles home or when the stranger joined them. It could have taken a couple hours. How long would it take you to walk seven miles? It could have taken half a day. They were sad and depressed and probably going a little slow. We do know that when they got to Emmaus, the two disciples urged the storytelling stranger to stay with them because it was getting close to evening. It was getting dark. Um, and they were going to eat dinner together. And it looked like the stranger was gonna go on, but they urged and they pressed and they said, stay with us, stay with us. And so he said, okay, I'll stay, I'll have something to eat. So he came in and Luke 24 verse 30 says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. What an incredible moment. Jesus didn't even eat anything. It says he blessed it, he gave it to them, and he vanished from their sight. Notice, it's in the breaking of the bread, it's at the communion table that they recognize who Jesus is in that moment. And guess what? They were so excited that they said, ah, seven miles, that's nothing. It took us half the day, but we are running back to Jerusalem because we have got to tell those people what we've seen. So they went straight back and they're yelling, they're yelling, they're pounding on the door. The women were right, the women were right. Luke should have put that in there. What did Luke actually say? Okay, what did they, Luke said they said. Okay, they yelled, the Lord is risen indeed, amen? He's alive, he's alive. And then what did they do? They told the story of what had happened when they were on the road and in the breaking of the bread. They told their story. And Luke 24 verse 36 says, it was in the telling of their story, their experience of Jesus at the communion table it says, while they were talking about this, this story, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It was in the telling of their story, of their experience of Jesus in the midst of their suffering, that Jesus shows up in the community. Friends, you may think you don't have a story to tell. When I was a teenager, I remember guest speakers coming to chapel, coming to youth group, and I remember their testimonies. And they almost always involved sex, drugs, alcohol, and or rock and roll. <laughs> it was the 90s. They were lightning struck down from heaven dramatic stories. They were incredible stories to listen to. We were wrapped in our seats at the edge hearing these, these stories. And, 
And friends, these are the road to Damascus type stories. Remember that story? Knocked off the horse, Acts 9, Saul, he's on his way to arrest some people so that he can persecute them for believing in Jesus. There's a light flashing from heaven. He falls down, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And the voice says, I am Jesus, who are you are persecuting? And Saul is blind for three days until there's a disciple of Jesus brave enough to go and restore his sight. These are the stories we usually think about. When we sing the hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm, was blind, but now I, we think the road to Damascus, but we forget about the road to Emmaus. On the road to Emmaus, there's no blinding lights, there's no voices from heaven. There's not even any remarkable revelations. Simply two ordinary people grieving the events of a very difficult weekend met by a stranger who helps them see a larger story. You may think that you don't have a story to tell, but it's in their telling of this very simple story, meeting Jesus in the breaking of the bread, that Jesus shows up to bring peace to the community. My husband, Mike, when we were dating, introduced me to the music of Sarah Gross, and she wrote a song called Add to the Beauty, and I love these lyrics. She sings, it comes in small inspirations. It brings redemption to our lives and our work. It comes in loving community. It comes in helping a soul find its worth. Redemption comes in strange places, small spaces, calling out the best of who we are. Strange places, small spaces, like walking home after a terrible weekend, like sitting down to eat with a stranger after a long walk, redemption comes. Then she sings, and I want to add to the beauty, to tell a better story. I want to shine with the light that's burning up inside. This is grace, an invitation to be beautiful. The disciples said, how our hearts burned within us. How our hearts burned. This is grace, an invitation to be beautiful. You and I are invited to add to the beauty. The other day, I was talking to our five-year-old Eleanor, and I told her, you look so beautiful. Our three-year-old Eric turned to me and looked up, am I beautiful too? <laughs> yes, son, you are so beautiful. You are. You add to the beauty. Your story doesn't have to be dramatic or perfect or resolved to be beautiful. It doesn't have to be a standalone story. Your story adds to the beauty when you see its place in the larger story and when you help us together tell a better story. The truth is that none of our stories are all beauty. The we had hoped moments are real. They're shattering, they're depressing, they're terrible, and we have to acknowledge them in order to move forward. But redemption calls out the best of who we are. Our stories are part of larger stories. They're not standalone. As you live and talk about your life, you are telling the story of your family. 
Are you focused only on the negative that we had hoped? Or can you acknowledge those and recognize where God has shown up in the story of your family? Your story is part of the story being told by your school or being told by your place of work. You can be a student, an employee, who calls your school, your company, to live up to the best of who we are, to add to the beauty while acknowledging the moments of dysfunction. Together, we are telling the story of this lost year university church. You may have attended here for decades. You may recognize this church. This picture was just about before I was born, I think. You might have been here for decades, sharing in the telling of the story here, or you may have just started attending a couple weeks ago. Your story is part of our story. You may live on Peacock, a short walk from the church, or you may have decided to call our church home from Brazil or Australia or the UK, all of who I'm thinking of people right now who have decided to call us home and be part of our story. You can add to the beauty. You can help us tell a better story. You can be part of helping us see where God is at work. Over the next few days, many of us will be celebrating the 4th of July, marking a significant moment in the story of the United States of America. Whether you were born here or you've come here from another country, like me, your story is now part of the American story. It's not a perfect story. The we had hoped moments are important to acknowledge, but like Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech, calling us to make good on the promissory note of justice and liberty for all, we can call out the best of who we are. He said they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As we tell the American story, we can call us to our greatest ideals. Walt Whitman lived in the 1800s, and he was one of the most influential American poets. He wrote a poem called, Oh Me, O oh Life. I'm gonna read the whole poem. It's not super long poem, so you can hear the feeling of the poem. Oh me, O oh life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, of myself forever reproaching myself, for who more foolish than I? and who more faithless? Of eyes that vainly crave the light, of the objects mean, of the struggle ever renewed, of the poor results of all, of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest, with the rest, me intertwined. The question, O oh me, so sad, recurring, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? Answer that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. In the first stanza of this poem, I see the two disciples on the road to Emmaus full of questions, reproaching themselves, foolish, faithless, as Jesus says quite harshly, 
plodding along, unable to see the light, feeling empty, useless, meaningless, sad. Then, in that moment of communion with Jesus, in the breaking of the bread, their eyes are open. They see that life exists, that their identity matters. They realize that the powerful play goes on. The author is alive and their story, their contribution matters. They run back to let Jesus' other followers know. This summer, I'm so excited that we're going to be continuing our bio series where we hear stories from some of the generous, courageous, creative people that make up our La Sierra congregation. Aren't they beautiful? Beautiful people, I'm so excited. We're gonna get to hear from them, amen. They're gonna be brave. They're gonna share their story, pieces of their story. We're gonna hear, because their stories make up our collective stories, and in their stories, we hear resonances of our stories and what we've gone through and our experiences. Bi bios is short for biographies, and in Greek, bios means life. Biographies, life. And I believe sharing these stories, hearing these stories will be life-giving for all of us. We'll, we'll hear their stories, and then a pastor will, will come and help us think about how their story shapes us as a faith community. There's so much life in our community. You see their beautiful faces here, and you know that after the service today, if you haven't gotten your picture for the church photo directory, we want your beautiful faces. Why do we do this all the time and bug you about being part of it? Why do we want your face? Because your story matters in this community. Your story matters, and we want to see you and your story and have that highlighted as part of our community. Today, you may not feel like you have a story worth telling. Maybe you're afraid that your story would be boring. What even would I talk about? What is my story? Where's God showing up in my life? Friends, I have never met a boring person. Never. Maybe you're stuck in a grievance story. You can't see past the we had hoped, and you don't see where God is in your story. Today, I wanna encourage you that this is what communion is all about. Notice, in the receiving of the bread, Jesus opened their eyes. It was in participating in the life of the community and seeing their story there. Communion, community, they both come from the same Latin word, communis. In English, it means common. Community, communion, common. Breaking of the bread, eating together, finding meaning together in our stories. On the plane a few weeks ago, I got to watch the movie A Man Called Otto. Has anybody seen this movie? Oh, I laughed, I cried. It was a little awkward for my seatmates, um, but it was a powerful movie. I recommend it. In the movie, Otto uses the word idiot 15 times. Now, for all the children who are listening, you should not use the word idiot, and I'm going to explain why. All right, why, why? Well, I'll tell the story. So he, he says, idiot, the store workers, the gas company workers, the neighbors, the marketers, other drivers, neighbors' children, other people's parents, all are idiots. I actually went through the transcript of the movie, and these are all the times that he uses the word idiot. Thank you, Google. Otto is grieving his wife, and he won't let anyone else in until he does. 
until he does. And he sees meaning in his story through meals together, through community, and through communion. Then he says, this is his turning moment. He says, I've been an idiot. I got so wrapped up in my own troubles, I stopped thinking of anyone else. And I figured they weren't thinking about me. Those writers did their Greek homework. I was shocked, you know why? I was surprised to learn the word idiot comes from the Greek word idios, which means own or private. Your own or private. An idiot is someone who's concerned with their private affairs at the expense of others. I've been an idiot, Otto says. The way to find meaning, to have your eyes open, to stop being an idiot, is through communion. The community, breaking the bread together, seeing your story in the light of a larger story, in God's story. Friends, as Otto said to his friend that he made, Marisol, you are not an idiot. You are beautiful. Your story is part of the story of breaking of, of redemption, and in breaking bread together, your eyes, my eyes will be open. In the experience of community, you will find yourself at the communion table, and your story of making it through after the we had hoped, it, your story will help others find hope. So I invite you, now together, to the communion table.